You are tuned into the Generation Green podcast, amplifying the voices of Black youth fighting for climate and environmental justice. We are your hosts, Ayana Albertini Florent, Destiny Harris, Travis Flowers, Elsa Mengistu, and I'm Destiny Hodges. This season is called Black and Breathless, and every episode will aim to connect environmental factors to justice issues. This is known as environmental justice and covers everything on the rungs of white supremacy, from police brutality, environmental racism, to capitalism. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's check in on everybody. How's everyone doing? Hanging in there. Um, It's been a rough and long, long week, but we're still here. God bless. Yeah, I'm just happy we made it to the weekend. Out here, you know, surviving, breathing, taking everything in. Love to hear that. We're there, man. We're just blessed, you know, with all going on. We're trying to have the glass half full, stay strong, stay together. Yeah, just trying to, you know, stay off social media a little bit, take a break every day and get through it. On this show, when we talk about environment, we do so in the context of the environmental justice definition, which is that environment is the complex set of physical, geographical, biological, social, cultural, and political conditions that surround an individual or organism that ultimately determines its form and nature of its survival. By this definition, the environment would include your home, your place of work, schools, community parks, etc., These are the spaces that we spend our time and they play a big role in our overall health, happiness, and well-being. This definition is very important because it takes us beyond the physical of what environment is. It includes um, the social, the political, the things that we don't see but continuously shape our identity and who we become and us as people. And this allows us to understand the correlation between resources and injustice, which also brings us to the topic of police brutality It's just been a major bridge of what we are going through in this country right now. So speaking of police brutality, let's kind of get into the nitty gritty. How exactly is police brutality a part of our environment? Like we said, the EJ definition of environment is all encompassing. It's more than just our physical, right? It's where we live. It's where we go to sleep. It's when we leave the house, what we see immediately. And for me personally, um, I live in a community that is heavily over police, right? Police are in my immediate environment. I see more police in my immediate environment than I see, um, you know, counselors and healthcare workers and other type of professionals. So um, when we talk about environment and the things we see on a day-to-day basis, for me, that's policing. And, and I live in a predominantly Black neighborhood. And we all know uh, the relations between police and Black folk are not, is not one that is good. Um, so when we talk about how police brutality relates to our environment, it's something that we see from a young age. It's something that we see in the media. Um, it's something that we see on our day-to-day lives walking down the streets. Um, and yeah, that's, that's as important as all the other aspects of our environment. Uh, and just so everybody knows, Destiny, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Chicago, one of the most over-policed places. So I just wanted to put police brutality or police violence like in the larger context of systemic racism and a system that is built on white supremacy. Um, so obviously police, you know, they serve to protect that system. Um, and we all know that that policing was started, you know, during slavery as a way for white people to protect their property which was us. So I also want to acknowledge that 
systemic racism has also created different environments for Black people. And I want to use the term Black geographies. Um, And that's an analytical framework that refers to the way that Black lives are displaced or diminished in material and non-material ways. Not only, you know, are Black geographies or Black spaces ways that we are rendered insecure through social marginalization or physical um, marginalization, like incarceration or gentrification, but these are also spaces where we, where our resistance takes place, where our resilience is manifest, where um, we are able to have creative expression and think about new ways um, of living. I think what's important for me is the piece of the definition that Elsa mentioned, where the environment determines the livelihood and the survival rate of the organism. So we start thinking about environments in this context of the social, political um, spaces that we're speaking of. You have to think about Black people and how they navigate the environment and how those environments ultimately shape them and mold them into people. And if you're living in an environment that's heavily policed, not only are you going to fear police, you're probably going to be pulled over at some point or have some type of interaction with police. It's just, it's traumatizing if we're going to be honest about it. And you have to think about the school systems that we're in. For me personally, I went to a predominantly white school. I was in a predominantly white school system for most of my life. And the constant racism, the constant white supremacy that was institutionalized in my education had an impact on me. And so tackling it on top of each other with being in an environment that's heavily policed, that has a poor education system, it's, it's traumatizing. And so you have to think about as black people, and it's not hard for us to think about because we all have our own personal experiences for the most part, that the environment has always extended far beyond the natural for us. And it has been heavily focused on the social because that's how we're socialized. And we have so many social issues and so many injustices and prejudices that we experience on a daily basis that our environment is forced to be defined as more than the natural. So it's funny you say that because uh, I guess coming from a different background, for those who don't know, for the listeners who don't know, uh, again, my name is Travis Flores. I'm one of your hosts. Uh, I'm from Montego Bay, Jamaica, where the, I guess, the the spectrum of racism that we ex- that we experience is mainly around colorism and not necessarily like a direct prejudice against people of color, mainly because uh, I would I, I would personally say that it's because the majority of the population is you know based on people of color, whether it be in people of African diaspora or even Indian. So I think what we experience is so far different from the average African American has to deal with on a daily basis. So growing up, like my experience has kind of just been knowing that you know people are insecure about their color, you know, so they bleach. Um, so that's kind of like how my social environment has been as it relates to to racism and how we see ourselves as black people. And otherwise, you know, like my environment or like my understanding of my environment has mostly been concentrated on the natural aspect. So I want to dive into kind of just like the the contrast in that and kind of just how, you know, the contrast of how Black families around the world may be looking at these issues a lot differently than Black families on U.S. soil, mind you, while also understanding what is experienced here and feeling the pain because we're all from the same source, from the motherland, Africa. So we do obviously have education about what you guys are experiencing, but when it comes to the the deep 
dwell like passionate feeling of like what's happening from our ancestors you know it's 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 a little different I think it's important to note that across the African diaspora, across the world, racism, colonialism, white supremacy is present globally. We all experience it. It's just in different forms and it's institutionalized differently. So here in the U.S., we know that policing stemmed from the slave patrol. It's always been meant to oppress us. We know the war on drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Nationally, it might not look just like that. I can't say because I'm not from an international community. But I do know that right now in the UK, they're protesting for lives that were also taken at the hands of police brutality and other lives that were taken, not just from police brutality, but with a racial bias and in a form of racial hate. So it's not just happening here. Maybe in policing, it's more concentrated here because the US in comparison to all the other nations has the highest prison inmate rate in the world like six times more than other nations. So there's that, but racism and white supremacy happens globally. Something that you said, Destiny, that uh, I thought was important is that you brought up school. And so when we talk about, when we talk about um, how when we're growing up um, and, you know, we're getting equipped to the world and we're being socialized, the two places that we are the most are at home and at school. Both of those places, as a Black person personally, are extremely over-policed, right? My my neighborhood is over-policed. Um, it's the biggest neighborhood. I live in the Austin neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. It's like 95% Black, severely over-policed. My school, I went to a, a school that was magnet and like the intellectual enrollment, so I did have a certain uh, level of privilege um, in terms of like Obviously, there's going to be a broader range of like socioeconomic status, meaning, you know, that it's less likely to be uh, over police. But my school was across the street from a police training academy. And so every time I would walk out to go get lunch, there'd be thousands of trainees who who don't even know what they're doing. Um, you know, they would do practice raids during lunchtime and not tell anybody we'd hear um, gunshots and not know what was going on. So like. Uh, the two places that we are the most, school and home, are the two places that we see police the most. And that is the environment that we're in constantly. Wow. Can you can you clarify on that a little bit real quick? You said that they would do raids without telling anyone there would be gunshots without any warning. Um, yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, that is insane. Yeah, so my school is right across the street from a police training academy. So, um, you know, these are the people who are not police officers yet but they're police officers in training, like literally door to door. And they will have to do things like um, they will have to do practice raids. You know, they have to practice a bunch of different scenarios, active shooter. And they would do these things. And because our buildings were door to door, we would hear them. We would hear their fake gunshots. And we wouldn't be told until after the fact. My principal would come on the intercom and she would say like, hey, if you hear gunshots, don't be alarmed. Like, that's not very traumatic for like people of color. In the city of Chicago, you need 1,500 hours to be a licensed cosmetologist. You only need 1,000 hours to be a police officer. Like, things like that, right? In, in a matter of six weeks, you're already a police officer. But that just, yeah, I thought it was important, um, especially now um, when when a lot of folks are, you know, trying to, 
gather around getting policemen out of school, right? Minneapolis, they were able to get police out of their schools. Portland, they were able to get police out of their schools. And it's something that the city of Chicago and grassroots organizers have been working on for years. So I just thought it was important to highlight school as an essential environment as well. As an essential environment. I'm looking at statistics right now. Black students are three times more likely to be suspended than white students for similar interactions while Black children also make up 50% of suspensions. And once Black children are in the criminal justice system, they are 18 times more likely to be tried as an adult than white kids. And I say that to say that beyond just having police present near the school in a situation like Destiny mentioned, there's also the institutionalized uh, discipline in school systems that Black children face also. So the socialization in the environment, it's traumatizing. And then can we uh, add in the environmental layer once more? If we're talking in the context of schools, if you think about cities like Flint, Michigan, um, where there has been lead exposure in the water to young children, you know, that causes brain damage and that results in behavioral abnormalities, which leads to, you know, disciplinary um, issues in school. So that's a huge, there's body of research on, you know, how lead affects the brain of children and how that in turn, you know, affects their conduct at school. So some of these things, you know, these children are born into based on where they are, but they're penalized for it far more severely than others. I'd like to add to that a resource, um, a book titled A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism and Its Assault on the American Mind by Harriet A. Washington. In her book, she talks about how there's this whole eugenics movement and scientists who say that intelligence is based on genetics and that it's hereditary when there's actually never been a genetic marker found to illustrate that. And that rather your environment is what determines your intelligence, is what molds and shapes your intelligence. So being in environmental justice communities, being in communities that are plagued with pollution, not only in the air, but in the water, um, chemical plants, living near paper mills, living near coal plants, your intelligence, your neurological functioning is dampened by that. And so that is also what's going on in Black communities, in communities of color, as we're dealing with police brutality, as we're dealing with an education system that isn't for us, as we're dealing with a lack of access to health care, as we're dealing with lack of access to grocery stores, our environment is in no way limited to the natural. And speaking of having pollutants such as in the air and water in your environment, which is linked directly to the fossil fuel industry, which is linked directly to industrializing communities, in most cases, they create pre-existing health conditions. So now we're living in a time of COVID-19 where we see the black community is impacted the most and hit the hardest because there's already pre-existing health conditions that make them more susceptible to COVID-19. And guess where those susceptible conditions start at? They start in their communities where what they're exposed to, the air quality, the water, the food. And so you think about food apartheid and how they don't even have access to grocery stores nearby, how they have to drive in some cases an hour or two or more to get fresh produce. You think about how going to a doctor's office just to get a routine checkup might be two hours away for you. And so you don't go, but like once in every five years. And so when thinking about black communities, there are all these ailments, if you want to call them in our community that weigh us down even more. And on top of that, 
there's systemic and institutionalized racism that perpetuates all of that. I think it's interesting to say that in a lot of cases of police brutality and in the case of even George Floyd, we see that his autopsy said that pre-existing conditions is what led to his death and not the officer's knee on his neck. So we can't breathe from the pollution, the toxins in our in our environment, and we can't breathe because their foot is on our neck, literally in every way possible. In terms of, uh, you know, COVID-19 and, and just bringing that back around um, and like, I think I, I really like the the statement black and breathless. I think about how in Chicago, when COVID was at its height, 70% of people dying from COVID were black people, right? And again, you mentioned it, that's not coincidental, right? Of course, you know, we have the things like, you know, we have pre-existing conditions because of the toxins our environments were built on. But also when we talk about environment again, um, the reason 70% of Black people were dying from COVID is not only because of the underlying conditions, but it was the lack of access to testing, right? Our mayor made sure to put all the testing centers right on the north, the affluent north side where people weren't really being affected by COVID at the race black folk were. And and this is reflective of like what our environments look like in general. Not only are they void of COVID-19 testing centers, they're void of grocery stores, right? We live in food deserts, right? They're void of adequate employment. They're void of, you know, affordable housing and and things of that such. When I I think about COVID-19, I think about the fact that my mom was an essential worker in healthcare, right? She doesn't have a car right? Her environment every day going back and forth to work was getting on the train. Um, I think about my dad who actually contracted COVID-19, right? And how he got diagnosed before he was even tested, right? They refused to test him because there was a, there was a lack of testing. And so if he had any symptoms, they just diagnosed him. And even, even going further, um, here in Chicago, you know, COVID-19 is a disease that affects the lungs severely, right? A power plant was approved to get knocked down in the middle of COVID-19 in a predominantly Latino neighborhood by the name of Little Village. So this is already a disease that affects, right, the lungs and how you breathe. We already have pre-existing conditions in our community, right? Folks still are going out in the city to knock down a power plant. And like release thousands of particles of particulate matter into the air. So yeah, I just I just think that was important to highlight. There's also been evidence that COVID nineteen is riding on particulate matter, uh, PM two point five, which are tiny lung damaging particles caused by fine industrial soot. So not only in the middle of COVID nineteen, you know, a respiratory virus, they're knocking down that power plant, as you said releasing all of those toxins, making them even more susceptible to COVID-19 because now the virus can travel easier. It just shows like the lack of regard for black and brown folk. Yeah, I think it's important to highlight that just like they knocked down that factory, that plant across the world during COVID-19 while everybody's having a eco-fascist view, if you'll call it, saying that the world is healing, we need to stay indoors, we don't need to be active, that all of these climate policy, all these regulations are being rolled back. Just a couple of days ago, um, on the 4th of June, the New York Times released an article saying that Trump is trying to weaken two environmental protections using COVID and the economic crisis as reasoning to lessen the restrictions for development. 
so they could build things, which would which is including things that are needed for like environmental justice communities, the time frame, making sure the particulate matters at a certain level. He's trying to do away with that. And that's not only happening here in the U.S., that's happening all over the world so that more people can extract fossil fuels and gain money during a time where we're all suffering. Not only that, but let's talk about the funding cut from schools uh, through K-12, right? So some of the things that we spoke about earlier today was just removing police from schools and just kind of how that environment in itself is something that fosters, you know, further racial attack on people of color. So now if there's funding being removed from these these institutions or just these, you know, organizations altogether, you know, how is it that we can look further down the road to, you know, ways of improving the system such that situations that we're in now where, you know, students can feel comfortable in their environments, where students can feel, you know, that they're at home instead of feeling like they're in a, a tense environment where, you know, they're, they're reminded of what their environment at home and at school just by that police presence and kind of just all the money that's even going further towards the police, you know, like how is it that we can curb that? You know, there's been a lot of talk about defunding the police and obviously lots of organization and um, petitions or even just further communication with local um, political representatives about defunding the police, you know, like I'm just really hoping that, you know, despite all of our efforts, you know, they're, they're not swept under the rug and they're not treated as something that doesn't directly affect, you know, how we live, especially in present COVID-19 and prior COVID-19 environments. Yeah, um, one thing I'd say is when we talk about healing, we cannot heal in the same environments that we've been hurt in. I think the solution is to build a different system. Um, removing police officers from schools, defunding the police, um, those are great initiatives. But right now, we are seeing our systems break down and we're being exposed to how these systems are, one, working how they are supposed to work by hurting Black bodies, by getting their profit from Black bodies. Right now, we have the time to rebuild the environments that we live in. We can rebuild what kind of education our students get. We can rebuild how we view education, the relationship we have with education. We can rebuild what policing is. We don't need policing. We don't have to police our communities. I think it's crazy that we have this idea that our communities need policing. No, our communities need support, creating new environments, rebuilding these environments instead of um, altering them because you can't heal in the same place that's hurting you. I think that's a very important thing to highlight. You can't heal in the places that are hurting you. But speaking in terms of logistics, how do we actually defund, disband police? How do we change the system? Not change, excuse me. How do we build a new system that works and that prioritizes equity and Black lives? How do we effectively do that? Because like you said, we can't just change and alter a system. We have to entirely disband it, throw it in the trash, if you will, stomp on it, stomp it out, and build something from scratch that prioritizes us and that's made by us and for us? How do we effectively do that? I think I think Elsa mentioned what she said was really important about how we're past the point of reform. We're, we're at a point of abolition, but I do think, like, now is the time to, like, mobilize. And a lot of folks that, like, just two weeks ago were saying that even though we're asking for abolition, reform is far-fetched, are thinking about reform, right? That's the starting place. Of course, abolition is the end place, but um, in terms of how do we get there, 
there's obviously a lot of work that goes into that, right? A lot of people are thinking now, like, the revolution is going to protest. No, revolution is not going to be one protest, two weeks, or even one year. Like, this can, this can be this can be decades long, right? Uh, liberation is not something that has a short timeline, but um, in terms of just like abolition, uh, it's crazy to me that folks can't imagine a world without these systems, right? When when folks were first living on the earth, when indigenous people were here, they didn't live with police. They didn't live with capitalism, right? Police wasn't something that exists, right? They didn't have these corrupt um, institutions um, and systems. So when, when, when folks, they didn't have a, a relationship with the earth where we commodified it, right? And things of that sort. So it's not, it shouldn't be hard to imagine because these systems weren't always in place. And so that's what I try to ground people in understanding. We didn't always have police and we were fine until they got hit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I just try to think about like how things were before like capitalism just became so globalized, right? And before everything became commodified. I think it's important, a part of what you mentioned is indigenous people and how they operated with our environment the natural, but socially as well, prior to colonialism, prior to uh, capitalism. And I think across the African diaspora, there has always been a heavy, a heavy emphasis of our ecological relationship to our environment. Um, Going back to civilizations in Africa, um, and even now in several tribes and communities, there is this understanding that you respect the natural environment for what it is. If you take something, you immediately give back. And even socially, there is such a regard for life and for the presence of each other and understanding how we're all interconnected that within the Black community, across the diaspora, we have always acknowledged the importance of the interconnectedness of one another. That's an African tradition. It always will be. In starting a new system, we have to center African thought and African way of life. And that is acknowledging the interconnectedness, the interconnectedness of us all, respecting all that is. Absolutely. And I just wanted to add, like, I think the African way of living um, was very community oriented. Um, And in those communities, because, you know, they were seeing the interconnectedness of, you know, if one person is struggling or one family is suffering, you know, that's going to in turn affect us all the social fabric of our communities in Black communities, it needs to really be rewoven and strengthened. I think that part of it is making sure that everyone's needs is taken care of. I think if people's needs are taken care of, policing won't be as much of a need because usually like, you know, crime usually stems from insecurity, financial insecurity or otherwise. So I think that one of the popular Um, alternatives to overspending in policing is invest and divest. Um, That's something Black Lives Matter as an organization has pushed for a long time. So when we divest from policing, the billions and billions of dollars that is put into that and that increases every year and we put that money into education, into transportation, into um, promoting food access, um, into building up our climate resilience of our communities. Like the money that is going to um, just fix the end result of all of that brokenness can instead go into fixing communities and mending. So I think that 
is a great solution. What do you guys think about, you know, divesting and investing? 100% uh, agree with that notion, especially in the times that we are now where I guess one of the primary stresses is that, you know, economically, you know, the world is going to suffer a little bit after the COVID-19 virus and, you know, all the effects that come with people losing their jobs and, you know, I mean, just jobs also just disappearing. So right now, the concentration should not necessarily be based on, you know, quote unquote, protecting you know, the environment that, that, that we're in right now, because clearly the people that have been put at task to do that and the money that has been spent towards doing that has not been doing the job that taxpayers are expecting it to be done because, you know, you're, you're giving power to individuals who clearly abuse it. And once this money is kind of pulled and kind of, as you said, divested from this kind of region back to where, you know, you benefit a society, a society that will be suffering, societies that are already suffering, you know, that do definitely increase kind of just our preparedness for what is to come. And I want to emphasize that, again, we're talking about environment in the context of social, political, geographical, economical, etc. And that there are many, many, many people organizing across the world who do incredible work in communities um, in this fight. And the systems that are in place the leaders that are in place within these systems are not securing what we need to survive. So when we talk about divestment, um, what comes to mind for me is in my philosophy class, we talked about seven grounds needed for survival. It was a class called environmental ethics. And those are your group. We can't get anywhere without our group. We can't even become a person without a group, meaning a male and a female creating us or someone giving birth to us. There's a group involved. And from your group, you get temperature control, which we need to survive. Our body has to maintain homeostasis. We need air. We have to breathe oxygen. We need water. Our body can only go so many days without water. Same thing with food, nutritious, healthy, and affordable food. We need access to health care, and we need access to education. And so right now, all the leaders that we have in control of these systems are not prioritizing our grounds for survival, but they're prioritizing rather upholding white supremacy and capital, that is capitalism. And so in order for us to ensure our survival and to ensure that all these seven things are met and the things that are attached to those, we have to divest from these systems that currently exist and build a system that works for us. And people say, well, how do you do that? Well, number one, where is your dollar going every day? If you're black, where is your dollar going every day? The black dollar is the most powerful dollar, yet we don't spend it in our own communities. We don't spend it on black businesses. We spend it and it goes to everybody else but us. So how are you spending your money? Are you supporting black businesses? Where are you buying from? Are you shopping from Amazon? Because that's a corporation that doesn't pay its workers, that puts warehouses in black neighborhoods and outsources labor. So we have to be mindful of how we invest and making sure we divest from these corporations and these institutions that don't serve us. Absolutely, Destiny. Managing the way we spend our Black dollar is a personal way that we can divest from exploitative industries. So, you know, fossil fuel industry, like either, you know, we can choose to take ourselves off the grid and, you know, if people have the means you know, use renewable energy in their home or, you know, stop supporting companies that big corporations that have ties with that industry. That's a way that we can ensure that that divestment happens while we work to attain it at the higher governmental level. 
I'd also say um, to do all of this, I think we really need to focus on the power of imagination. Because before this country was founded, um, centuries ago, a group of European nations came together and they re-envisioned a world um, that follows the order of white supremacy and capitalism above all else. And they restructured the shape of this world through colonization and imperialism. And we are living in the products of that world right now. And one thing that at the end of the day, capitalism will do after it takes everything that it can take, 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 it will take your imagination. And for the first, not for the first time, but the reason we see so many people out in the streets right now is unfortunately because we live in a global pandemic. People are away from work. Other than essential workers, people are away from work. The 40-hour work week prevents us from organizing and coming together and building community and solidarity. When one, we don't even have the time to build community amongst each other and to develop interests um, and hobbies outside of work. We can't organize together effectively. We can't demand the change that we want together effectively. And we can't imagine a world that we live in. Like Destiny said, indigenous people didn't have police. In the origins of this world, we didn't have police. We resolved conflict through other issues instead of creating institutions to keep perpetuating them while also creating them. Um, and so we need to hold on to how powerful imagination is because what we can see, what we can imagine is what we can create. And also through imagination and through by building community, we can control the narrative in which we live because we have seen thousands of people go into the streets and protest for Black lives in this past week. But we've also seen such a powerful and channeled unity in how the police and how media and how um, politicians are responding. It's because they're conspiring, they're conspiring together, they're working together. Um, at the end of the day, the one thing fossil fuel companies, um, mega corporations and people in positions of power have against the rest of all of us is that they are unified to one thing. Um, and that one thing is the system that we live in. In a few days, the police have been able to come together and have a PR stunt where they are chanting with police, with protesters, where they are kneeling. And we have our guards down and we let them into our movements, into our spaces. But that's hurting us. It's hurting us right now and it's hurting us in the long run because it's limiting the imagination of the world that we can live in outside of the one that we are in right now. And so while divestment is great, um, the conversation cannot begin and stop there. And our imagination cannot stop and begin with divestment or whatever is going on right now because what we can what we can see, what we can envision is what we can have. Um, and if we're not envisioning something bigger, something that we don't have in front of us right now, we're not going to get to the world that we want to build. Absolutely. I know family members and people have said it jokingly, but very seriously, white supremacists are organized. The system is extremely organized. In some cases, people would say that they don't even claim the KKK because now the KKK is in suits. They're judges, they're lawyers, they're your politicians. They are organized. And we have to be organized in seeking and in achieving our liberation. And as you said, Elsa, the imagination is absolutely crucial to that. I think about prior to integration when we had black teachers and black schools and how black teachers would uplift children and teach them their history, teach them their roots and empower them to be the strong black children and become the strong black men and women that they are. And in today's time, 
we definitely need to go to those roots and to teach our children and to teach each other about the powerful history that we come from, about the Marcus Garveys, not just the Martin Luther Kings, about the Angela Davises. We need to teach our children, we need to teach our community about what's possible. And what's possible is far beyond the systems that we currently live in, it's far beyond the current times that we live in. Prior to these systems, prior to colonization, imperialism, there were African communities thriving. Where do you think our science and technology comes from? Africa. Where do you think philosophy comes from? Africa. Where do you even think religion comes from? Africa. And for us to, in many cases, a lot of us not know that and not understand how we have been deceived and how our imagination and how our um, our connection to our heritage and our identity has been severed is very destructive. And so our imagination is absolutely crucial and we have to connect our imagination to our history. We have to know our history in order to create a future. And I think that's also a necessary component. I think that learning about indigenous and traditional ways of sustainability, um, and when I say sustainability, I mean similar to the definition of environment, a holistic definition where you're considering environmental, social, and economic sustainability. But um, yeah, if we go and look back at the ways that we used to do sustainability in the past, that can give us a lot of clues for what we should be looking to do moving forward. I know, as Elsa mentioned, I feel like sometimes my imagination has been shot. Just something I want us to consider is how do we get to achieving this new system, this regenerative system, when we are up against a sizable population of the country that wants, is seeking to preserve and keep intact um, white supremacist culture? How do we balance, you know, being within that, but also having our communities and, you know, attempting to invest in our communities and just reform yeah, does anybody have any resources to provide where people can go to to find out more information about defunding police, whether that's social media, books, a podcast, a YouTube channel? Like here in Chicago, there's a current campaign, uh, Cops Out of Schools um, Chicago, and they have a lot of information. If you just look in, look them up, like so much information will come up. Um and like I guess the official name of the campaign is Police Free Schools. Um, they have a lot of resources in terms of like you know how much money is spent um, on the police department here versus the Chicago Public Schools. So that's one resource. Also, I got into organizing actually around police divestment. That was one of the first campaigns I did. You guys can go to a website called No Cop Academy. There's a bunch of resources about policing and the impacts uh, on it, on the city and in school. So those are two resources that I can offer up. I also just want to mention um, that people have the power to weigh in on city budgets that that are responsible for allocating funding to policing. Budget season in different in cities typically either start at the beginning of the calendar year, January, or the beginning of the fiscal year around July, August. Some cities are actually trying to pass budgets without public much public input due to COVID-19. So I've seen a lot of social media campaigns where 
Um, they're encouraging people to speak out against it, even virtually through email. So there's a lot of links going around on with email templates, um, especially like New York City, where the uh, deadline um, for budgeting is July 1st. Make sure to weigh in on that. Every city usually has a hearing period um, where people can weigh in. And then ultimately, those who make the final decisions on the budget is city council. It goes back to participation, like people vote for their council members. Um, so that's something to think about long term or even just even short term. Like while we're in this system, we're up against these huge structures, event like slowly chipping away at the structures from the inside out. People can find information on city budgets. It's public. Um, so you just want to go on your city government's website and you should be able to access those resources. There's also a website called themarshallproject.org where you can see what your local agency, your local police department, how much money and what resources they're receiving from the Department of Defense. So I think that is incredibly helpful as well. I know on Instagram, one of the accounts that I follow that's pretty simple and breaks down information, cute infographics that's easily digestible is We the Urban. They're not the only Instagram account, but I've noticed that they're, they break things down very simply and a lot of times address white supremacy um, and white fragility in a way that is communicated well, in my opinion. I also want to drop uh, at the Slow Factory. Um, they do an amazing job at resources uh, on defunding the police, breaking down racism. They do a great job with that. I would recommend um, Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. It's something that I'm just starting to read, but basically looking at the contents and the chapters, she breaks down prison reform versus prison abolition, the roots of um, our criminal justice system today, slavery, civil rights, et cetera, um, gender and how that's in everything. She kind of just breaks down kind of the discussions that we're having right now and the circles that we're going in. You can just Google the book and you can find a free PDF anywhere. All right. So we're obviously dealing with a really challenging, intense political climate and also just social climate protests and increased police violence and forces against us. But obviously amidst all of that, we're still in a world with a rapidly changing climate environmentally. So we just wanted to provide a brief climate update just to tie everything in that we've been talking about with our warming world. So in February this year, Zipporah Matumbi of the Tree Establishment for the Livelihood Improvement Scheme and other groups started planting bamboo native to Kenya to replace invasive Latana Camara and I may be saying that wrong, but it's a beautiful tropical plant native to the West Indies and eucalyptus. The Latana and eucalyptus were creating forest fires and drought, respectively. These conditions contribute to food scarcity, famine, which is also being exacerbated by the current desert locust outbreak in those regions. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization projects that the outbreak will spread from East Africa to West Africa and Southwest Asia. So if you didn't know, Africa is being impacted by 
the worst effects of climate change. We are already facing the detriment of environmental abuse and commercial and colonial impact. The projections are already happening. However, Zipporah and fellow Black women aren't saying not today. So I thought that was a really positive way to show that how, you know, amongst everything going on, Black women, yet again, are taking upon themselves internationally to make a change in their environments, um, naturally or otherwise, mirroring a little what we have in the United States, but in a just a different way. It's really important to remember that there are certain places in the world that are already experiencing what we fear about climate change. And it's also important, you know, to understand that in trying to change the world, the environment, society, we also have to preserve our own well-being. Um, it all starts with us. I just wanted to ask folks, you know, what they're doing in such a challenging period to remain balanced, grounded, and centered in their lives. One of my mental escapes has always been in the kitchen. And uh, recently I've been focusing on kind of just putting my energy and my passion of uh, environmental sustainability and also black health into what I put on my plate, creating a lot more uh, Caribbean inspired vegan meals. So, you know, these are obviously will vegan meals from the African diaspora. Now, this is mainly to increase my, you know, love for cooking and also, you know, to give a different look on how black food can be plant-based and also just ethnic and interesting to kind of keep people within the plant-based realm and keep them coming back and seeing something new as opposed to, you know, the typical stigma attached to, to veganism that may be a little Caucasian. Plug in your uh, ebook and your social media, Chef Flowers. Oh, my bad. So yeah, if you guys are more interested in following any of this, so please go ahead on Instagram, follow me at chef.flowers and go on youtube.com and subscribe to my YouTube channel at Chef Flowers on YouTube as well. I just recently uploaded a brown stew mushrooms with a chickpea potato patty and it's absolutely delicious. And I can't wait for you guys to try it out. Mm. Sounds scrumptious. For me personally, during this time, I think... As a college student, I'll be a junior this year. Um, also, all of your hosts today are either current Howard students, Howard University, that is, the real HU, or they are Howard alumni. Uh, but for me personally, shifting in this entire COVID climate, just from taking classes in class to then being abruptly moved out of my dorm to taking classes online to being given more work somehow online to moving around to trying to adapt to the COVID situation, going to the store differently. Now we have protests, police brutality, all this trauma porn online. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot for all of us. And for me personally, getting into a routine or trying to get into a routine is what's been helping me. So starting with meditation or yoga in the morning, which I'm trying to get back on schedule. It's looking rough right now, but the hope is that it will get better. Having a healthy diet. So I'm currently plant-based. Um, so staying away from meat. I was kind of teetering and having cravings during the quarantine. I had a little bit of shrimp. I regret it. But just making sure that I maintain my personal wellness, my mental health at all times, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, it is absolutely important, like Ayana said, to prioritize ourselves and our well-being because we can't work if we're not healthy. Destiny, I totally feel what you said about routines. 
I definitely backslided when it comes to my routines just before all the madness happened. I was getting into the hang of a really good self-care morning routine. I've been tapering off of that. So I'm just working to get back into that. Spending time outside is so important. Um, if you can, even though it, you know, it feels so unsafe, finding a way to spend some time in nature is, can also be an act of resistance, showing that, you know, you can feel safe outside despite how it feels right now. Um, and then also for me, I have been really excited during this time to see so many resources about Black businesses come out. I'm really into fashion. Um, I was already really into sustainable clothing before, but now it's just been, my shopping has been taken to another level now that I'm finding Black-owned, sustainable, and ethical brands. So a little bit of self-care has been uh, a shopping, a Black-owned shopping spree, which I'm not, you know, I don't feel as guilty about. But I just love to support companies that have my values and put money in the hands of the people that I am in some way, you know, in community with versus funding a system that really doesn't care about me. So it's been awesome to feel like I can, you know, upgrade my style while kind of like protesting with my purse. Protesting with my purse. That that's powerful. That's something we should all do. I think it's important to say that even in the midst of everything that's going on right now, in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of police brutality, murder, in the midst of the economy that is increasingly declining, I think it's important that we acknowledge that as Black people, we are strong, we are beautiful, and we are powerful. And we have been through many other revolutions before now. And the one that we're currently in, we have the strength to get through it get done. The collective consciousness right now is awakening to all these injustices that we have been aware of. And in some cases, they're helping us fight. And in some cases, as mentioned earlier, they're conspiring against us. And so we have to band together. We have to seek investing in our communities. We have to divest from these institutions and from these corporations that don't serve us and prioritize our Black dollar and where we spend it and prioritize our lives of one another. All Black lives matter. All Black lives matter. That means Black trans lives matter. That means all Black lives matter, like I said. So there's no excluding that. And for us to make it collectively as Black people, we have to realize and prioritize that and maintain our personal wellness and ensure the wellness of our community and everybody that's in that. So in the midst of climate change, in the midst of racism, in the midst of structural white supremacy, we will prevail as we always prevail. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black and Breathless, the Generation Green podcast. For more information, follow us on our social media at generation underscore green or visit our website, generationgreen.info.